Hello and welcome to The Current Thing with me, Nick Dixon, and today we have a very special guest, the author of the seminal work on masculinity, The Way of Men, as well as the equally excellent Becoming a Barbarian, A More Complete Beast, and most recently, Fire in the Dark. It is, of course, Mr. Jack Donovan. Thanks for doing the show, Jack. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so we've got so much to get into, and some of our audience may not be familiar with you, so I'll start with maybe a fairly straightforward question. In, in at least two of your books, you say that masculinity is now optional, and you give the example of hunting at one point, which used to be a, a necessity for survival and is now a luxury activity. And I immediately thought of Joe Rogan with his elk meat in some exclusive range, shooting deer with an expensive crossbow. But then it, the obvious question, and you, you do tackle it in the books, but the obvious question I wanted to start with is, if masculinity is now optional, why even bother to pursue it? Well, masculinity is optional for society to survive in the world, right? But it's not, we're still the same animals that we've always been. Uh, and, and in the way that I always compare, when you talk about evolutionary psychology, I always talk about uh, sex because sex uh, doesn't make any sense. It's not, it's not, uh, it, it, if you're not re- doing it to reproduce, there's actually no reason to do it. It's kind of foolish and silly. It's a big waste of resources. But people want to do it anyway because it's part of what it means to be human. And I think that masculinity for men is what it means, part of what it means to be human. It makes us happy. It makes us, it, 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 it's part of, our process of being better versions of ourselves uh, to become more masculine and uh, to do some of these things that we are designed to do. We've been doing for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. So if you, you can say that something's not necessary anymore, but that doesn't mean that humans don't want to do it. I mean, we could survive on pills, I guess, you know, but we still like to eat beautiful food. You know, like there are things that, you know, are still part of being the human experience that I think are really important. Masculinity, I think, is one of those for men. And also, there's a little bit of a, it's optional on a regular basis uh, in civilized Western societies when everything is going well. But if, you know, the world is very unstable right now, and the idea that you'll never have to defend yourself, or you'll never have to defend the people around you, uh, or you, and you'll never have to do any of these things that men have to do, and you can just sit and type on a computer for the rest of your life, is not necessarily... Uh, real. That's not how reality is working right now. I mean, if you you could have said that to people in Ukraine a while ago, and they'd be having a very different reality right now. We're seeing uh, war erupt in different parts all around the world, and uh, if men are weak and defenseless, um, that really only benefits people who want to control them and and, and to you know exploit them. Uh, if they can stand up for themselves and and operate by themselves. Uh, independently, then uh, they have a much better chance for themselves and their families. Yeah, and as soon as the Ukraine war kicked off, we noticed people were trying to evacuate. And what did they do? They pulled every man under, I think it was 60 years old, out. And they said, you've got to go on the front lines. And suddenly we saw the reality of when you actually do need men in a pretty brutal way, as you point out. Yes, yeah, yeah, we need... there's There's an old thing with warriors that... Uh, once you send them out to war, you don't actually want them back in the village because you're, they're scary. You know, like, you, they, they they do things that you're not comfortable with, and and so people have said that you know in different cultures, you know, throughout history, uh, that there's a weird dynamic of getting warriors back into the society, and there's a little bit of the same thing with men. Like, men can be threatening, and so they don't want them around until they need them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But then when it all kicks off, we go back to the patriarchy. Um, and another thing you said on this. Is that, is, is that masculinity is not a mask just because we have to try it. This was very 
interesting to me because this idea like, oh, masculinity is a mask and really we should be talking about our feelings and all that. And, and it's a good point. Like, it, why is it a mask? Just because we have to, it, we have to make an effort towards it. Because we didn't, I didn't think of this growing up. We, we, I was in a fairly masculine environment because it was the north of England. It was a state school and farmers' sons and stuff in the village. And so it was a certain masculinity that maybe wasn't an ideal version. But, but then when you leave that, you sort of go into the feminized culture and you don't really think about it. And it took me years to even think about it again and start going back to the gym, whatever it is, lifting weights or playing football or whatever it is that I do now. But you, I just didn't consciously think about it. And so that, that's what I thought when I, when I read that. Like, yeah, just we have to make an effort. Why does that make it inauthentic? It doesn't make any sense. Well, I mean, we have to, everything that you have to do in life that's actually worth doing, you have to make effort to do. Uh, you know, if you're, you're going to paint a pig painting or you sculpt a big sculpture or build a company, it takes a lot of effort. That doesn't make it into authentic, right? Yeah. Uh, I think it, basically the way masculinity has been looked at for the past, you know, 50 years or so is through the lens of women. And they, they want to make masculine, they want to make men more like women and they treat men like defective women. And so, you know, everything is put in that, you know, space. And unfortunately, uh, with men <clears throat> now, you run into a problem with, uh, sorry, I was choking there a little bit, but, uh, you run into a problem with you know, men are being judged as women instead of as men. And that's the frame for all of this. And this, this mask of masculinity that, uh, that, that was referring to is actually kind of a feminist trope that they've trotted out for years and years. And every once in a while, like every three years, you'll see some guy write kind of some ghost written book, some celebrity write some ghost written book, like the mask of masculinity. It's like the steam that they go over, like that uh, men are fake and women are real. Is basically the, is what that's saying. Men are fake and women are real, and uh, and the reality is that I think that this control of emotions, which has been really important to men throughout history, has to do with the role that they've had to take in society. If you're going to be a leader, you actually have to control your emotions a little bit. You can't just like like let's talk about our feelings, uh, and uh, you know just cry all the time because people will look to you for leadership. And that's true whether you're a father or whether it's true, you know, whether you're a head of state or whether you're leading a company. Uh, emotional control is really important because your emotions actually affect the people around you. And so the idea that we shouldn't, you know, control them and, 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 and you know, be a little bit more stoic, I think, is, is very foolish. Yeah, that's always the thing they trot out. Men should be talking more about their emotions like women, basically, as you say, because now masculinity has entered the mainstream. We have, we have a journalist in this country, sort of feminist, sort of Guardian-type journalist, Caitlin Moran, and she has just now finally written a book on masculinity. And of course, it's awful and absolutely clueless. It sounds like she's never met a man, and the ones that she has met all read The Guardian and have low testosterone. So it's kind of like, it's absurd, but they're having to finally reckon with it because of Andrew Tate and things like this, because they can't ignore it anymore. This is my take. But their, their, their answers are always incredibly embarrassing and ridiculous. But they are finally having to sort of tackle it. But so far, they haven't grasped it at all. Because like you say, they just see us as defective women. Well, yeah, I mean, they're, they're coming off of years of theory written by women. It's, it's women thinking about what they don't like about men and then writing it down. And that becomes what masculinity is in the theory of like gender studies and all these things. Because um, how many actually masculine men are, are actually studying that and making that their career path? Like none. So the entire field is basically what women think about men. Uh, so it, it's kind of ridiculous. You really, it's not, uh, you don't, you know, if, if men wanted to know what masculinity was, they would look to someone who they respect as kind of the, 
you know, an exemplar of masculinity, right? They'd be talking to, as I have over, I've been really lucky over my career. I've got to talk to tons of, you know, everything from UFC fighters to uh, Navy SEALs and, and all the special operations guys and all that. And, uh, you know, their idea of masculinity is very similar to what I wrote in The Way of Men. And uh, that's what most men would look at. And that's why you see people attracted, like you said, to, to Andrew Tate. Andrew Tate looks very confident. And it, he looks like confident and he... And, he has a direction and people gravitate, especially men gravitate towards confidence. Uh, he, he's strong. He does exactly what he wants to. And he says exactly what he wants to. And people gravitate towards that. And if you have this other guy who's on the other spectrum of masculinity that feminists are like lifting up as, as their exemplar of what men should be. Uh, and he is always apologizing and he's always backing up and he's always, uh, and he doesn't look very physically imposing. He doesn't, uh, uh, look like he could actually do anything. He, he's just saying words. Uh, me, young men, especially, aren't going to respond to that uh, because that's not that's not the highest version of what they could be. The highest version of what they could be and what they want to become. They want to separate themselves from you know the mother and the womb and all this and become this different thing that they are. And to become that. Uh, it takes work and effort, as we were talking about, and you, you to become stronger and to become more competent physically and also mentally in, in all the, all these realms. And uh, you know, to have this guy who just looks over to a feminist to ask him what to say, uh, you know, men don't respect that. No, no, and, and it's completely absurd. And and what is your take on Tate? Since we brought him up so early, so I'm on sort of good terms with Tate on DM terms with him. He follows me on Twitter nice. now X and. Some people think this means that I support absolutely everything he says, and they send me reviews on my podcast saying, oh, this guy supports Tate, who's, who has a bad take on Palestine, and gives me one star. I'm like, this guy's completely mad. But, and some conservatives message me, how can a Christian conservative support Tate? But I support him in the broad sense, and at least it's a broadly positive message you know, about masculinity, although conservatives do have criticisms of him, obviously. And we had Will Nolan on the podcast who claimed that Tate was a feminist because he promotes promiscuity. That was an interesting take. But um, I've heard all sorts of critiques. But what is your overall take on, on the Tate phenomenon? Well, I mean, I've been doing this since before Tate was doing it. So I, I've gotten to see that kind of rise up. And, and I've been talking about masculinity in the same way for a really long time. And, you know, Tate is, like I said, he, he exhibits competence. And he, for all intents and purposes, if the way of men is the way of the gang, Tate has a gang. He has a very large group of men that he uh, influences. And uh, I've met some of the men in, you know, who have been out to, to visit him and hang out with him and so forth. And um, some of them are really accomplished men uh, that he, he doesn't have all just like losers who like look up to him. He has some very accomplished men who look up at him, too. Um, I don't keep track of everything that he says or does because I I have my own take. I try to not be polluted by other guys ideas um, who are in this space because I want to make sure that I have an original voice like I don't. I don't uh, listen to like Jordan Peterson a lot uh, because I was writing about this before Jordan Peterson. So I'm just going to keep saying what I'm saying and not uh, just, I don't want to be derivative, you know? So, uh, well, I see Tate from afar and I think that, uh, you know, compared to a lot of the con super conservative Christians and whatever, we probably have more in common than they do. But, uh, uh, you know, obviously, as you said, I don't necessarily agree with everything that he says because I actually am a grown man who has a mind of his own. Yeah, fancy that, yeah. No, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I was watching Tate for years, so I, I already had a take on him way before the mainstream discovered him. And I guess you're even one 
part prior to that you you were even talking about this stuff and writing about it you, i think way of men is 2012 wasn't it so yeah, yeah, yeah. you're way ahead of the game on that so yeah it must be kind of annoying in a way for people just to discover all this stuff now um but you talk about the gang that you just mentioned the gang there so i might skip to my gang questions um you talk about the gang as the uh what do you call it the kernel of masculine identity and um it's well there's loads we could say about this but maybe just for the audience and the listener what what is it you mean when you talk about the need for a gang well i think men's identity comes from being accepted and respected by other men and uh, that has a deep evolutionary i think basis uh that's the way we've survived for most of human history is that men needed a group we were, were cooperative hunters we're not these guys who like went out in the wilderness by themselves and survived and then found a wife and drug her by her hair and like had some babies i mean that's not actually how human societies have ever worked uh what you had is a collective of men are collective hunters and fighters so men have always worked in these teams and that's why like when i said i talked to like uh, special forces guys and so forth they're, they're they work in very small teams and they're like yes this is exactly how we operate and that's that's been very gratifying to hear that because that's how human males have have interacted for a really long time and that doesn't mean that women are important and that children are important and sometimes people characterize my work as being like everything's about being in a little hunting and fighting gang and that's ridiculous and that's not what i've ever said but uh what they we do get a big part of our sense of self and identity and worth from being validated by other men and uh, that people always say you could never care about what anybody thinks, and everyone who says that is a liar. You know, like everybody, everybody cares about what someone think, thinks. You can't, you can't care what everyone thinks, but you should care about the men who you respect and what they think of you, uh, because that's that's a little bit of a check for you as well. Because we can all do crazy things, and and uh, we, you know, I always say when honor comes up, when we talk about the the concept of honor, it always means doing something you probably don't actually want to do. Uh, you're, 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 when your honor is invoked, uh, this is about your honor. It, it really means that you're about to like do something that you probably don't want to do, but you're going to have to do because you believe that you should, uh, in, in the context of a group or in the context of what you believe is good or right. Uh, so I think that, I think, yeah, you have to, all these things are very you know, important and to have men around you who you respect and who respect you that makes men feel really confident and grounded. And if they don't have that, they feel very nervous and insecure. And you can tell that if you have guys who are like in groups of men who they've you know, made their way up through the ranks and found their place in them and whatever, uh, they are, they're more confident and grounded. And these, these guys who are living by themselves, have no friends, whatever, they're the guys on the internet you know, like yelling, just screaming on the internet. Well, actually, you know, like, and, 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 you know, like they have to fight with everybody in the world because they, they're hiding in their basement, you know, like we're at their apartment or whatever. So, yeah, I quite often joke on the podcast that I live on my own and have no friends. So you've kind of outed me there as uh, I no. think I'm... <laughs> so you got to work on that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do have some friends, but I, I that's kind of a joke, but I definitely live on my own. And I do think I've, I've actually suffered from this kind of atomization. I do think, I mean, it's partly why I'm interested in all this stuff. I don't think I'm like living it. I think I'm aspiring to it, but you know, and I have little things that's like... That's how everything starts. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's hard to get a gang. You know, I've got my five-a-side football group, real football, by the way, and it's like... So soccer and uh, and we that's good, but it's like they're all politically they're kind of 
except for one guy they're like the enemy they're like the professional managerial class in this country we call them remainers you know they voted for to remain in brexit and they're kind of bbc certain financial institutions uh, liberal think tanks so they're kind of just the area i live in super left area so it's kind of like they're good guys but they're they're not really my gang but we, we play the football and that's great but that's not really i mean tate has the war room you talked about you've got your own groups i think and so yeah people do need to do this and um by the way, just quickly on honor, while I remember that we should bring back honor. I was saying to my mate yesterday, we should bring back jewels. You know, like you insult me in the pub, so tomorrow we have to shoot each other with pistols at noon or something. That that was a that was a great idea, jewels. Um, kind of had its flaws. A lot of people died. But, Definitely, um, I, I I I'm I'm glad in many ways that I if someone calls me a name in public, I don't have to fight them tomorrow. Like that's <laughs> you know like <laughs> because yeah. especially with the internet, man, you wouldn't make it very long at all. True, you know, like, True. people call me names limbs. on the internet all day long. I'm glad. I I don't have to duel all of them to, to defend my honor. Uh, you know? Yeah, you're right. The text moved on. I demand satisfaction tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. hundred guys just shoot you. Yeah, that's that's terrible. Um, yes, yeah, so that's an evolution. But when I think about the game, there's lots of I can. There's more things I want to ask about it that are kind of bigger questions. But in pragmatic terms, I wonder sort of what it means because I was listening to my friend Carl Benjamin do a speech the other day, and he was talking about consciousness raising. He was saying that in the 1960s, feminists got together in little private groups. I mean, they were just talking about their issues and kind of raising them. And that's apparently where the phrase the personal is the political came from in 1960s feminism. They said, well, what's the point of us doing these groups and just chatting about our problems? Like, no, no, we're consciousness raising. Is that sort of part of the idea of a gang that men just getting together talking about these things is itself a kind of political movement? Well, I mean, and, and that's why they don't want men to get together. They don't want men to be in unsupervised groups without women watching them or without uh, people telling them what they should and shouldn't say and whatever. Uh, because it, I, I believe that men, men getting together in groups is actually the seed of where culture comes from. And I, I often joke that culture is actually just an inside joke. Uh, you know, that it, as soon as you get guys together, they start to create inside jokes and then other people don't understand them and it just kind of snowballs from there. Uh, you know, they become, after a while you're talking about things and no one knows what you're saying. Uh, you know, you can see that with internet chats and things like that. Uh, it'll become very self-referencing. And uh, I think that, yeah, men do start to hash out ideas. And hashing out ideas is political. Talking about ideas and what we should do in life. What is good? What is best? What is better? Uh, how, how, how is best to live? I mean, that's what... I, I just recently went to Greece and... It got to visit the sites where you know Plato taught and where Aristotle taught, and they taught in gyms. They taught in places where young men and men got together and talked about ideas, and that's what we've always been doing. And it's I, it's fascinating to me to see this happening today because a lot of the guys who are actually talking about these ideas now, let's go back and look at philosophers and, and so forth, are guys who are either you know kind of muscle guys who goes to the gym uh, or uh, the guys who are talking about ideas today are often, um, yeah, I, I talk to men at jujitsu after an open mat, we'll try to kill each other for like five minutes and then uh, we'll, so what do you think about this? And we'll start talking about ideas. And that's an old, old form that I think men have been doing for a long time. So yeah, when men get together and talk about things, there is a political aspect to that because obviously when we talk about what is good, we're talking about what we believe should be done. And, and how what laws should be and so forth. So it, it all follows from that, but doesn't mean every group is necessarily a political group either. Do you think there's an issue in reaching the kind of normie man? You talk there about, you're saying it is, it's, it's, it's coming out of just geeks on the internet. Because one paradox I thought, not paradox is a bit strong, but a kind of contradiction is that 
the men talking about masculinity are quite often internet geeks because it's not a mainstream topic in a way. And then there's guys like you who are not, you couldn't really call a geek, but like you said, there's more strong guys getting involved as the Tate. But then you've got a sort of normie man who is the kind of beleaguered sort of family man. I'm sure they're happier than me, actually, and they're having, you know, they've got families and they're doing all right, but they're in the feminized culture and they haven't really questioned it. And they say things like, oh, I'll have to check if I'm allowed to come to football tomorrow night. I'm like, allowed? And so that kind of thing baffles me, but maybe, you know, they would probably look at my life and say that it's kind of bleak. But, but is there an issue of getting through to the, normie, the normal man who, by nature, is kind of swimming in the culture of a feminized culture? Well, I think that's happening more and more. When I first started writing about masculinity, uh, it was probably you know, in 2008, 2009, something like that. When I was writing mas- about masculinity for a mainstream audience, uh, almost no one was doing it. You had like pickup artists and men's rights activists. And yeah, a lot of them were just internet nerds. And that, that was the way it was. But now you really don't have that. You have, we've transcended that to the point where I think masculinity is under such a big threat that you can't pretend that it's not there anymore. I think, you know, in, in, when people were overseas for the war on terror and, with, you know, when, uh, you know, in 2010, 2012, 2014, men could kind of insulate themselves, especially if you were in a very masculine part of the country or a very masculine, like, group. You could pretend, ah, well, that's not around me. But now when you got to the point where people were talking about transitioning their, their sons... And, you know, you're having all these, this mainstream discussion about masculinity every day that they can't get away from. I think a lot of men have come to the, the forefront and started talking about it. Uh, you know, you, you don't just have weird internet guys and guys like me who are just talking about ideas and theories. And I've, I've if you, you can look at older pictures of me, and I've, I've changed a lot over the years from talking about that. I mean, it's a tra- personal transformation. As you said, it's aspir- it starts out aspirationally. Uh, but uh, now you have guys like Jocko. Uh, talking, uh, Jocko going on Rogan, and and uh, you have all these guys uh, talking about masculinity in a much more present and and way, in a way that they're actually looking at what's happening in society and actually talking about it now. Whereas before, yeah, if you talked about masculinity in like 2010, you were a weirdo, you know, like no one wanted to. Yeah, everybody's like, what? We know what it is. What are you talking about? And now I think the sense of urgency is there, especially with the rise of someone like Jordan Peterson. Uh, and you know, he's been a huge influence as well. And then you, know, like you said, Tate and all those other guys, but really, I mean, Jordan Peterson was a big guy who influenced a lot of young men, uh, and real, they realized that they need to, to look at what being a man actually means. Yeah. Yeah. And he was hated just for raising that initially in a very moderate way. And people were like, Oh, shut up. Why is he crying? I mean, it was a bit weird that he was crying, but you know what I mean? It was like, he yeah, just, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he, Jordan Peterson basically gives normal, good dad advice. Uh, yes. You know, he, that, that's Stand what he does. Straight. He's like, he's basically, he's just a father figure to a lot of men. Yeah. Yeah. But he did show, obviously his popularity, as you say, showed the need and the, and the desperation that, yeah, as you say, perhaps wasn't quite as clear in 2010. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you talk about the gang, though, it actually goes much further than that. It, it's not just getting together in groups. It's actually like a whole mindset where you're kind of, as I interpret it, beholden to a small group and accountable to a small group rather than the mass of people. And, and this is a key difference. And it, and it, and it comes up in this uh, Becoming a Barbarian, which I'm annoyingly only halfway through. But you talk about, you sort of mock individualism, a kind of gap year individualism, like finding yourself, who am I, and going to India or whatever. And you talk about social identity is meaning. Identity is everything. Tribal identity is everything that matters. So you're very big on, on that. And, and it's very much like, so we have nationalism versus globalism. And you're sort of going one further and saying, no, no, it's, it's actually a smaller group. 
and you, you're, you're only accountable to that group and not the wider culture. Yeah, yeah. And I would say Becoming a Barbarian is a book where I was become, you know, having that argument with myself in many ways uh, because I'm, I'm one of the most individualistic guys that you will ever meet. I'm, I'm a weird guy. You know, I do, I do a lot. I'm an artist. I'm an artist and I, all the things that I like are things that most people don't like. Uh, so, you know, I'm a very individualistic guy and I'd like to, I'm a thinker. So I, you know, if, if I don't agree with you, I don't agree with you. And that's how it is. Uh, you know, I, and so it, it was me struggling with myself a little bit, uh, that book. Uh, but I do think there's a lot of value there in terms of who you're actually accountable to. I, I, there's something I wrote about in that book about we, and people use the word we in this very, very, the royal we, yeah, like it's this very broad we. And who, who do you speak for? Who are you really like authorized to speak for as we? And uh, yeah, nobody, most of you, most of us, nobody, like who, who, who authorized you to say, well, we think this, who's, who, who are you talking about? Who's behind you? You know? Uh, so, and we, you know, and I, I just did it there. When people talk about society, they say we, well, society is full of a whole bunch of group of people that don't agree with each other on almost anything. And, uh, you know, we tear each other's eyes out, uh, given the chance. So what is that? And globalism is just one step further. Like everyone is one, everyone is the same, but you can't, you know, there's, there's a guy who wrote about, uh, you know, like, uh, this limit to human, you know, how many people we can actually yeah. understand in our lives. Yeah. Yeah. How, how many people we can actually have maintain meaningful relationships with. And it's not many, uh, whether it's 150 or 250 is, is questionable, but, you really can't care, like authentically really care about more than, you know, 100, 200 people, uh, you know, to maintain a meaningful relationship with them. So the idea that we care about these things that happen to strangers, uh, it's, it's all very programmed. And it's, very, it's all very, you're like, in, in the way that you're being basically shown a movie, about, it, it, you know, in the way that a movie can make you cry, even though the characters aren't even real, uh, you're being shown about a, a movie about things that happened somewhere, and you're like, "They're now now cry about this." And the reality is that there terrible things happen everywhere, every, all all the time, every day. But you're being told to cry about this thing, and I think it's really helpful to people to dial back. Out. It makes people crazy. Like if you look at you know people are on you know Twitter X whatever, uh, they're on the internet and they're looking at all these. Um, all this news constantly, this constant influx of news, and it makes them crazy because they're being asked to care about people they don't know all the time and how much energy they have left for the people that are, are in their actual circles. You know, they're, they're taking that energy. So I think that, yeah, I mean, it, it should be, you should be more accountable to the people that, who actually know and have interaction with and people who are in your community. It doesn't have to be a gang, you know, but, but the people who are in your broader community, like they should be more important to you than strangers that are really just numbers far away because you have no interaction with them. They're, they, you have no connection to them. So I, I, I think that making, I, I love small governments and small groups uh, more than anything because I think that they can actually, they're self-policing a little bit better. But uh, when you have these big centralized systems of control, what you have is people far away from you who don't care about you making decisions about your life. 
And yeah. that's, you know, if you, if, if Bob is down the street and Bob is messing up your life because he's on the town council, you can go have a conversation with Bob. But, but if Bob is so insulated from you that you're like, he, he doesn't really even know what you are, you know, like how, how can he make decisions for you? I mean, it's, I think that that's uh, something that we're, we're seeing now more and more. Yeah. And that's kind of decentralization. Yeah. As you say, it's very hard to cry about someone in a totally foreign country, unless you're Jordan Peterson, he could probably, he could probably manage to, <laughs> he seems to cry a lot, but um, sorry, Jordan Peterson. We love Jordan Peterson. I don't know why I'm having a go at him, but um, yeah, on that point. So on a more sort of philosophical part of that, the, we've had people like Andrew Doyle on here who very much is standing up for liberalism, but you are, you've sort of rejected the universal values that liberalism claims exist. And you sound a bit more like Carl Benjamin, who was on here, and he talked about something called postmodern traditionalism, which he had invented, which meant that he accepts the radical subjectivity that the left claims. So, you know, I'm perceiving the world in a certain way and, and that's valid and you can't say it's not. He goes, okay, fine. But then you have to recognize my culture or tribe, which in his case, he was calling it the English. So in England, we like free speech, fair play, you know, cups of tea, whatever it is. And that's our tribe. He was saying, well, you have to acknowledge me on that basis. And so I was wondering where you stood on that. It sounded something a little bit like that that you were talking about because you were certainly, the, the liberal approach is to reject identity politics, right? And say, we, it's about the individual, it's about whatever shared values we all have. But the identity politics approach is obviously the opposite. And you've sort of really doubled down on that in, in that book. And you're saying identity is everything. And one more really interesting point you make is that they've started with white people or white men, but eventually they'll come for everyone's identity. Yeah, I mean, all everyone's identity is up for grabs. I mean, it, people don't want you to have your own specific group unless you're very controlled. You know, like, you know, Islam is okay as long as you're the right kind of Islam and you're saying the right kind of thing. It's not like, okay, if you're not saying the right thing. Uh, and the same, the same is true with every other group. I mean, they, you know, like uh, in America, we have, you know, if, if black people are not uh, Democrats, uh, you they're... You know they they're in trouble. They're they're not black anymore. You know like they and uh, so they're they're not allowed to have their own views unless they're only special and and loved by that particular establishment if they're saying what they're supposed to be saying. Which you know like they're just it kind of makes them slaves. You know <laughs> you know in the same way that any group uh, that you know, if you can't say what you actually mean and you can't like leave a group, um, what are you? You know like uh, if if you can't go out on your own and, and say hey you know I don't agree with you anymore. Uh, then what are you? You know, so I I think that postmodernism is an interesting thing, and I actually have a guy who's in my group, who uh, Christopher Robertson, who's a really really smart guy, and he's we were talking a lot about postmodernism yesterday and what it really means and who came up with the ideas of it, and uh, liberalism is an interesting uh, thing too between America and Britain and what it means in Europe and what it means elsewhere and what it's meant for all of its history. It, it, there's a very strange history there of what that means to a lot of different people. And America basically means you're a communist. Yeah, I mean, but uh, I mean, really, I mean, I would consider myself a classical liberal, maybe, uh, you know, like uh, in terms of, you know, America was a liberal nation. Like we wanted to not have kings and, uh, you know, like have certain freedoms. Uh, and so I think that that was, you know, I'm very much for that. I'm a free speech guy. Uh, and so, you know, I, you know, that's a very, that's a liberal value. Uh, you know, like uh, historically speaking. So, you know, it's it's difficult to kind of figure out where you sit in all that. Uh, yeah. But I do think that people need to be able to make their own mistakes 
and have their own weird, crazy little group with its own little weird, crazy ideas. And the idea that we're all going to share the same ideas and live as one always requires genocide. The idea that everyone's going to agree about everything always requires mass murder. And every, every time it's brought into, you know, it's like, okay, the entire you know, country of Russia or China is going to believe the exact same thing. Well, a lot of people are going to get murdered because that's not the way humans operate. Humans are tribal beings. And the great thing about humanity is no matter what kind of group you start, if it gets big enough, eventually it will splinter and a bunch of guys will like go off and be like, well, no, we're not really on the same page as that. If you look at Christianity, uh, Christianity, you could say that Christians believe X, but it's always a no true Scotsman argument. Like, well, well, one Christian will say, well, he's not a real Christian because he doesn't believe this. And really, because Christianity splintered into a thousand little movements and they all disagree with each other. And some of them, again, tear each other's eyes out. Uh, so, but that's, that's what human, that's what humanity is. And I think we're at a place where in the world where we see this kind of transhumanist movement where people want to escape humanity, be go, go beyond what human is. And in this way that sounds Nietzschean, but isn't, uh, you know, they, they want to become better than humans, but they mean coming, becoming computers or becoming like, you know, you know, transhumanists. And I think that I, I would have to say that I'm on the side of being human. I, I think that we have to understand that humans have a nature and, and embrace that. Uh, masculinity, the fact that men and women are different is part of human nature. The fact that humans are tribal and they're going to break up into groups of people who disagree because they need to, to assert their own identity and their own importance in some way, that's very human and they're going to keep doing it. And so like, if we can look at the world realistically and say humans have a nature and operate accordingly, I think we're in a much better situation than if we say that everyone has to believe the exact same thing always because people are going to disagree and then the people who disagree get targeted. And yeah. that becomes this, you know, this game. And every time it's been implemented, it, it, it requires a lot of, it requires a lot of violence to make everyone agree on the same thing. Yeah. No, yeah, well, I definitely agree with that. I mean, that's the sort of leftist top-down approach, whether, it, whether it's communism or fascism, it's, yeah, it's the yeah. top-down, rationalistic, everyone, ultra-rationalist, perhaps, idea. Everyone must follow yeah, people, this certain people scheme. People always say I'm a fascist, and I'm like, no, I'm a, I, I hate them both equally. Like, right. uh, I think that anyone who made it through 2020 and they still says they're a fascist is crazy. Yeah. Like, you, you literally just saw what that looks like. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right, yeah. right. You know, you know, like, oh, when people tell you you can't leave your house. Yeah, you know, yeah. like that's and, and what you can do where you can go and all that. I mean, any totalitarian society, society I'm like a hard no on. Uh, yeah. Again, because I, I want to be able to make my own choices in life, right? Yeah. Yeah, the government in league with big pharma corporations demanding you stay in your home. It looks a little bit like fascism, but yeah, you couldn't yep. tell them that at the time. Although, yeah, of course, yeah. obviously no one, obviously I didn't have the vax, but, um, you know, we don't want to go down that rabbit hole again. But um, I have one more question about the uh, the identity stuff, though. From the uh, Becoming a Barbarian book, you, you, so you've talked about identity over individualism, but you talk about the empire of nothing in that book. It's one of your kind of famous inventions, not inventions, but interpretations of the globalist culture that we have now, kind of corporate globalism or something like that. And one, one point you made, you said that you basically said moral universalism is necessary for global trade. That, that's kind of the idea that, that, that 
everyone needs to be the same so that they can sell stuff to everyone across the world. That's pretty much your argument. But I started to wonder there, is it really about just money? Because we've seen, for example, woke corporations where they're more concerned about their ESG score than the bottom line. Then again, when the bottom line gets too ropey, uh, they start to panic like Bud Light or we've just seen Victoria's Secret has just decided to have attractive models again because the fat models aren't working and they've lost so much money, which is kind of hilarious. But I'm just tackling this idea because you could argue that wokeness itself was not universal. So that was where they went wrong. And then they return and retreat to something more universal to win back the shareholders. But I'm trying to figure out what's going on there because I'm not totally convinced it is just commerce. There seems to be a deeper ideology that's like, even if we lose money, we want to push this ideology. Or are you right because going woke is what loses them the money and then they retreat to something more universal? Do you see what I mean? Yeah, and that is interesting. Obviously, that's that's happened since I wrote that book. Uh, right. But uh, a lot of that because... It, but I, I think that it facilitated commerce. Uh, globalism it really... A lot of the mentality that came from was there to facilitate commerce. Uh, you know, like, we're all the same. We, we have to be able to hire people in Beijing and uh, America and whatever, and they have to be able to get along. And if they have the same cultural values, then that works better. Uh, I do think that that makes a lot of sense. But when you come down to the, you know, the, the woke thing, uh, that seems to be a different agenda. Uh, it's, it's neo-communist, but I, I think it's, it has nothing to do with what the people with the money want. It has to right. do with the people. Uh, it, it's kind of for the little people. Yeah. I think woke is kind of a, a distraction for the little people. It's kind of a religion for the people, whereas people, you know, like the people with real money don't care about those. The the, the little blue-haired ladies screaming in the street uh, about whatever, about who's, you know, social justice or whatever. They don't care about that person. They don't care about social justice, clearly. Uh, <laughs> they don't care about justice at all. They, they care about advancing their interests. And so, yeah, I just think woke is kind of a, like I said, a religion for the masses. And um, as far as whether, you know, it, it makes the ESG stores or go up or down, well, isn't that, I'm not a financier and I, I am you know, pretty much financially illiterate, but I, it seems as though they care about those scores because it has to do with their ability to borrow money and all these other things that are like very important to these companies in their long-term survival. Uh, and so like... They lose a little here. They gain a little here. They lose a little here. I don't. Th- I don't think the people in power care about these ideas at all. I, I don't think. I don't think they care about equality and, and uh, you know, social justice or any of that. I think that those are things that you know they're using to influence different uh, things that are happening in the world. Uh, I, it's it's very it's very unconvincing. It, you just have the people like in the mainstream. I think the little people who are really devoted to these ideas. Yeah, I tend to agree. I think it probably came about because of Occupy Wall Street, the post-2008 crash. They were like, oh, no, we need to appease these people somehow. Let's give them this, something about diversity. And, and then you got these people at Disney talking, claiming they're biromantic asexuals, and they're the ones writing the movies. But then some, someone at the top in the board goes, what have we done? We've, lo- we've ruined Star Wars. And it's like, yeah, you let these people get carried away with this stupid thing you gave them. And so, yeah, that makes more sense. And the idea that globalism really is just about money but it's it is but now it's under threat and in the in the sort of with china being sort of too hostile we're going to have a very different world where we can't really be globalists anymore it's going to be because i talked to doug stokes who's a professor who wrote a book called against decolonization he's pointing out it's going to be a new world order it's going to be less globalism and we're going to have to be much more clear about our values because we're not going to be trading with china as much and so on 
So it'll be interesting to see where where that goes. But I can't, yeah, I can't remember what it, what question it pertains to. But just that's just a, a note for me. Um, so I really wanted to ask because you mentioned Christianity just briefly there and, and how it descends into different groups. I did want to ask about the kind of morality of your books, and and I know you have Christian fans, and we've had loads of Christians on here, and we do a series on the Bible as well with a, a vicar, so it gets very Christian on here. But your books are not exactly Christian; they're they're you sort of you're very influenced by Nietzsche. It's a very different kind of moral landscape. Um, so there's a few things I wanted to ask about with this. So in in a more complete beast, you actually claim that Christian ideas of heaven and hell are a kind of revolutionary resent, resentment or ressentiment, the, the Nietzschean word. And Scruton talks about that in How to Be a Conservative. It's a kind of, it basically means resentment. It's like a kind of victim mentality or zero-sum game of the left. I don't have something because someone else has it. You talk about it in terms of Nietzsche's Slavin morale. I think it's called the slave morality. And... um. And you say, I'll just read this interesting passage you have here. You talk about, you say, anti-noble man, and you basically mean the, the Nietzschean slave morality, whatever you want to call it, slave mentality. And he doesn't mean literally slaves, but we all, we all know that on this podcast. So you say, anti-noble man has resigned himself to a happiness that can only come in the afterlife or after the tables have been turned and the evil, powerful people have exchanged places with the good, powerless people. In a religious context, the good, powerless people convince themselves that they will be rewarded in heaven while they vengefully fantasize about the eternity of pain and suffering that their foes, the evil, powerful people, will be forced by their righteous God to endure in hell. So you're basically, in, in this world, Christianity is a kind of leftism, victimhood or something like that. Well, I mean, it's a pre... I think, and I'll get a lot of flack for this, and this is fine. But uh, I mean, to me, it's it's a uh, it's woke 1.0, and I think that woke what we're seeing now is a new religion. Really, woke is a religion, um, in and it's very much a religion of resentment. Like uh, the, the people who have power shouldn't have power. The people who eh, like they'll get theirs in the end uh, after the revolution comes. Uh, they'll get their theirs in the end, and so forth. Um, and it's a very anti-human, anti-life uh, thing. And, you know, Christianity is, like I said, there's so many different takes on what Christianity is and what it really means. Um, my thing with Christianity is obviously I, I have just never been a Christian. I was raised Catholic, but not for very long. And, uh, you know, so I've had exposure to it, but it's not, it just has no appeal to me aesthetically or philosophically. And I just don't believe it's real. Uh, so, and, and I see it, in the big scope of all the other religions in the world, I'm like, well, that's kind of what my solar idealism that I, that I advance is about. That's my philosophy. And the idea is that, well, we see all these other religions around that time and that region, all these other things that have developed that have similar similarities. I think it's more useful to look at the similarities between all these religions than to say, you know, this is this one thing that happened in this one place at this one time is the absolute truth. And all these other things are lies. And that just seems ridiculous to me. So I, I, I avoid that. But at the same time, obviously, I have tons of Christian fans. And that, the reason why is that whatever I think of Christianity and its relationship to masculinity, uh, men still want to be men, no matter where they are and no matter what religion they ascribe to, uh, whether they're Muslim or Christian or atheist or whatever, men still want to be men. And they still like, so there are masculine men of every single religion that's ever existed in the world. And so they respond to the ideas in my work that are consistent with their experience as men. 
And uh, Thomas Carlyle actually did a really, had some really good words about it. I'm going to butcher the quote, but it's something like, you know, like I, you know, you can have a man of every, any single creed and he'll be, his worth or worthlessness is, you know, not dependent on that creed at all. <laughs> you know, he'll be a good person or a bad person or uh, a strong man or a weak man. Uh, and, you know, it's really almost not related to those, that, that uh, question at all. So I, like I said, I, I have many Christian fans and I, I like having them, you know, but uh, I mean, I'm not a Christian. And so I have to be honest about that as well. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, we have a lot of Christians, but we also have people who don't like the Christian podcast. So, you know, we'll annoy someone with, with, with whatever we say. But um, just on this same theme, you talk in The More Complete Beast. You say the beast who is able to avoid the trap of resentment moves beyond good and evil. The noble beast wants everything that looks delicious. At that point, I just thought, is it hedonism? But then you said as well, no act is evil, but the consequences may be undesirable. There is no good or evil, only actions and consequences. And I thought, is that any different from the kind of satanic Alistair Crowley, do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law? Is, is this roughly what you're advocating or is it different? Uh, no, I've never been a big uh, Crowley fan. Uh, it, there is a little bit, uh, I, can, I can see where you'd see an overlap there. Uh, but more it'd be more Nietzschean than Crowleyan. Uh, most of that obviously comes from Nietzsche. Uh, and I think that you know humans like again, like I said, live in gangs and they live in communal societies and you don't just do whatever you want in a communal society. I mean your actions have consequences. And that's what I was trying to say. Uh, there is that yes, your actions have consequences. So yeah, you can do whatever you want. maybe maybe it's not bad, but you know, you're going to be judged in a certain way. People are going to think of you in a certain way. It's going to change the way people look at you, uh, depending on what you do. And so you have to be aware of that as well. And, uh, you know, I, I honestly came up with that, uh, that uh, the actions, not consequences part of that book because I was having a discussion with a guy who was in a tribe with me at the time who uh, wanted to do some things that I knew the tribe wouldn't like. And I was like, hey, listen, kid. Uh, you can do that thing. And I don't really think what you want to do is that wrong, but the guys are going to have some opinions about it. So you better be ready to, to deal with that if you do that. And so like, yeah, you, you, I think that, uh, you know, actions do have consequences and do whatever you want means that they don't almost, you know, like, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, if you want to sit and take, you know, live in an opium den, uh, with the, you know, hookers, then, well, you kind of know what your life, what's going to happen to your life. You know, that's not really the best practice. I, I don't like hard and fast rules. I like best practices in terms of morality. Like what works out for most of the people most of the time? What produces the best result? Uh, you know, and they're different for different kinds of people who like are in different kinds of things. We were just reading a lot of Aristotle recently in our group and that uh, virtue ethics, I think, comes into, into play there. And the idea of like, well, you know, what is good for this guy who is a construction worker is not necessarily a good guy. What is good for this, you know, office worker, there's a little bit of a difference there and what their, their version of good has to be. And to, you know, to be good at being what they are, um, it requires a little bit of a different mentality and a little bit of different behavior. So I think that there's so much nuance in human behavior. And I think that we, when we break everything down to like simple you know, commandments, uh, of like, this is good, this is bad, this is good, this is bad. It's almost like mandatory minimum sentencing in uh, you know, legal terms. Like, no matter what they did or what the extenuating circumstances are or whatever else happened, 
you know, this person did this and so that they get this punishment. Whereas I think that if you really dig into you know, the whys, and I think that's where we need human judgment. Like I said, I'm very, I, I think when men can have human judgment in their experience in life and say, hey, well, I can see why that happened. So we'll handle this a little bit differently. And I think that that's important. I think that that's our, that's our agency. Men, and when we when we break things down in society to nothing but you know kind of programs like scripts, like if then if this happens that then that should happen, then we are losing a little bit of our humanity and our and our own sense of judgment and agency. Yeah. So you don't ascribe to a kind of universal morality. You're talking more about an empirical approach where don't do that because in reality it will lead to bad outcomes. But there's nothing inherently wrong with it. Is what you're claiming. But actually, yeah, the second and, and part. So many- and so many of our, our things that are worked in other societies before us don't work now because there are so many different things going on. You know, like, yeah, humans are always the same. You know, like we're basically the same animals that we've been for a really long time. But a lot of the variables around us in our environment have changed or the social environment has changed. Uh, you know, in my book, I'm, like, I don't have, you know, like... I, I don't believe in kind of putting women up on a pedestal because we're in a society where that... that, 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 that they do nothing but that all the time. So that's not, as a counterbalance to that, I don't need more of that. Whereas like in ancient Athens, to have a whole city named after the goddess Athena and uh, to have that be your, the, you know, your highest pinnacle of, achieve, you know, of, of that city, uh, that would seem unnecessary today in a feminist world. You know, if you're going to help men, you don't need to elevate women any more than they're already elevated. So, yeah. uh, you know, it, what we need at this time is different from what we needed then. And, and so as long as you keep this idea of, of human nature and have a vague sense of what that is, because we're not going to have like an exact sense because everybody's different. But this vague sense of human nature uh, that I think is that most of our ancestors would have recognized as well. I think that that's where you can have some kind of harmony in human flourishing. You actually predicted my next question because I, I wrote, do you actually believe this or is it that men could use a bit of this attitude given how enfeebled they are? So what I was writing there was, I was listening to your More Complete Beast and I was thinking, this is perhaps provocative and it's a little bit like, it's a little bit about inspiring men to be a bit more bold and, you know, do do what you want to an, each an extent. And yeah, I thought maybe you didn't literally mean it in all cases, but, but in this society now, we could use a bit of that impulse was how I took it, which is almost exactly what you've just said there. It's like yeah, I mean, it, men are people always say that men aren't romantics, but men are the most romantic uh, creatures in the world. In fact, yeah, like ro- romances were really just stories about knights on horses, right? I mean, the romance were the that's the etymology of it. They were the novels of it, adventure stories for men. Uh, men, men are romantics by heart, and they, and and you know, they, we we want we need a beautiful idea. And so, yeah, if, if everything's going in that direction, yeah, you need to throw a more beautiful idea in this direction. And, and reality and wisdom is always somewhere in the middle. You always, you always find what really works somewhere in the middle, but you have to throw something out this way to, get, to counter uh, the other way, uh, within, within reason. Uh, I, I, I'm, you know, we're both on Twitter, X, and, and uh, uh, you know, the, the endless streams of hot takes of people just saying crazy things to see what they can say. Uh, I'm not a big fan of that at all. I, I think you should say things that you actually believe. <clears throat> and what I talked about were really actually, I think, beautiful ideas. And, but, you know, whether is every person going to reach, you know, that, that pinnacle or that, you know, all the, along the way, or are they going to settle somewhere in the middle? Probably. 
You know, so yeah. what what that that book really honestly was about, and I think is really really important more today even than when I wrote it, is that the idea of resentment in men who are, let's say, conservative or right wing or whatever you want to call that, because I don't think any of the labels really mean anything, but the the men who are not, say, in the liberal establishment or the you know, far left or whatever, what you see is them taking on a victim mentality in the sense that like, because they're, you know, they're outnumbered uh, and, and they're, they're the ones who are being told that they're always bad people and that no matter what they do, they're always oppressors and that they're always, uh, you know, like they're, they're terrible human beings. And it's like a, an original sin doctrine to a certain extent. Like no matter what you do, you're always bad. And um, I was seeing that victimization sense rise up and the point where they would always, where they're just complaining about what those other people are doing and they're not doing anything themselves. And what A More Complete Beast as a book was actually really trying to do, and I think we need it now more than ever, is to get these guys to step beyond that resentment, that idea that like these meanies, these leftist meanies with blue hair are controlling my life and I'm mad about it, uh, to a place of creation. Like, well, these leftists and so forth, they have a dream of the future. It's a crazy future, but they have a dream of what the future should look like. What's your dream? Where do you want to go? And that's what I really think that that, that that was what I was trying to get across in that book. Like, you know, a noble man is, is, is a creator. It's like, like, don't just be a mirror of the, uh, the bad things that you don't like. You know, be yourself and have your own vision and like look forward because the people who have the vision of the future are the people that win the future generally. Yeah, Tanner Guzzi made a very similar point on this podcast. To be honest, possibly inspired by you. And he said, we're not building things. and We're, we're complaining and, and doing memes and stuff. And one thinks of that meme. What is the meme? It's something like, imagine if it was the other way around, where a lot of the right just complain. A classic example, as we record, is that yesterday, as we record, there was a Rashida Tlaib was, seemed, seemed to be leading some sort of a riot in the Capitol or protest in somewhere in Washington. And people were looking at it going, well, isn't this like Jan 6? I mean, I'm sure they'll go to jail for 22 years. And then other people like Aaron, Aaron McIntyre, however you say his name, was kind of making jokes about it. Like, we, you know, we're really just going to keep saying, well, imagine it was the other way around. It's like, yes, it's not fair. They hate us. You know, you are if you're a conservative American, you are oppressed. Congratulations. Now, what are you going to do sort of thing? Exactly. Exactly. Because yeah, it, it, it gets tired. I mean, I've been watching this play out for the last 10 or 12 years. And uh, yeah, they're like, well, if, if we did that, it would be totally different. You know, like, well, that's, yeah. Congratulations. You figured that out. Okay. Well now, now what, again, what is your vision for the future? Just, you can't just be mad about what are the people doing or like what Hollywood's doing. Like if you don't like the movies they're making, make some movies. You know, you have all these conservative influencers. They have millions and millions of dollars. Like make some movies, you know, <laughs> like do, do something, create something rather than just asking, you know, like being mad that these other people who believe totally different things are making things about what they actually believe. Like you need to do the work yourself. And I, I, unfortunately, I think conservatives or whatever you're going to call it are a little bit behind on that. And, it, and like you said, Tanner said something very similar and something you just put out on Instagram. Uh, and that's Tanner and I are good friends and these are some of the area we're very different. I mean, he's a Mormon and I'm not. And, and, uh, you know, but, uh, we have a big overlap in, in certain areas and that's one of them that we, we believe that uh, creation is really, really important to moving things forward into the future. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, yeah, uh, that people are doing it a little bit now to be very fair. Daily Wire have just launched 
they've, they've relaunched their kids channel they've renamed it and it's going to be just directly compete with disney they've got their own snow white coming out so they're trying to do that and i suppose in this country we have gb news which is criticized and we don't get it's not perfect and we've got ofcom regulating it but people are now more and more trying to do this and we have to do this and i think i'm surprised we're so far behind in the arts it's really just because they're captured by the left uh, you yep. know we had the friends of abe in hollywood where if you were conservative you had to secretly have a secret gang called the friends of abe i mean it's insane to even think that about that but i always claim that the um hero's journey is inherently conservative or it's certainly much closer to conservatism it's it's based in reality it's based in a often it's based in a man struggling failing then he overcomes you know any clint eastwood film i was watching warrior again the other day or star wars even as you know Jungian archetypes it's certainly not a, a leftist vision and whenever they try and impose that it's usually an awful movie so it's strange that we're so far behind in in the, in movies and arts and things like that it's probably just because they've they're, the left have been they have all the money basically and the, and the studios well also to be fair um, and yes, obviously they're imposing their own vision on on certain things, and and the uh, heroic stories are they aren't even conservative. Again, they're just human, <laughs> you yeah. know, like they they're they're ancient. Uh, you can't you can't put them even in a modern political construct. They're they're ancient. Right. Uh, and they're part of what being a human means is is a man on a story to to, to stop chaos. But what, because what men want to do is actually create and save order, and that's that's the big story that always that is all of human history. And uh, I think one of the reasons that uh, they're also behind is that what happened, I think, in America, and maybe it spread, but not as far. It didn't spread as much, I think, to England and, and uh, Australia because we import your guys to play our heroes. Uh, all the, all the uh, heroic actors who play in the big American movies are either like uh, Australian or English because at least you guys were allowed to go to, to, to acting class and like drama class and it was still okay. Uh, I think in most, in, in America, like, America has such uh, these kind of Protestant uh, puritanical roots in, in its culture that they associate masculinity with, you know, like, can't do anything creative at all. And there's nothing, you can't be anywhere near the arts. Uh, and uh, so I think that anyone who was rebelling in some way against that is going to go into the arts and then they, they uh, they're obviously more, funneled towards different values. And I, I think that the Americans in their conservative communities or whatever did a really bad job of, of fostering creativity. So they really have their, themselves to blame. They, it's like if you, if you punish every guy who wants to take a theater class and say that, uh, oh, he's probably gay and he's, and he's a sinner and whatever, uh, well, then guess what? You're not going to have any theater. Uh, you know, like you need, you need that element in your society in some way, in a positive way rather than a negative way. And unfortunately they, they pushed all those guys out. Um, and then they just became subversive. And cause that's what happens. You, you, you say, we don't want you in your community, you become subversive to that community. And that's what happens. And, and uh, that's happened, I think more in America, maybe than, uh, maybe, uh, you know, Britain and, and, uh, Australia, because you know, like I said, we, you guys at least still perform Shakespeare and stuff, you know, <laughs> like uh, their actors actually do some of that still, but, uh, it, you know, and so to have the gravitas to go on stage and, and like, and give a, a band of brothers speech, uh, there aren't many American men who can do that. One of them is uh, Kevin Spacey, who just came back and did that at a Roger Scruton yeah. lecture. But he's been cancelled despite being exonerated in all courts. So another attack on men we could go into. Yeah. But, um, yeah. Um, and is this what you mean by start the world, which is kind of one of your catchphrases? You, just, you mean we have to start creating our own things? 
Absolutely. You know, that, that was a funny quote, and it came actually from, I think, uh, Peter Fonda. Uh, years ago, he, he made it, He made a very, very contentious, strange statement at, like, at a Cannes Film Festival. Like, I don't think we should say stop things. I think we should say let's start something. Let's start the world. And I incorporated it into my book, and it's just become my, my slogan. Uh, he's dead. Uh, <laughs> I took it over as my slogan, and I've been using it for years, and it really became really what I'm about. Um, it, very much in harmony with what I believe uh, is that, yeah, you can't just say no. And that's a big problem with conservatives. They're just like, no, no, no. Uh, and we're not, at a, we're at a place in a time in history where we need people who are saying yes to something, not people who are saying no to everything. Uh, you need, you, like I said, you need a positive vision and, and we need many positive visions. It's, I mean, that could be an exciting time for the world. I mean, like, there's a thing that I'm creating, the solar idealism and the, my group and whatever, and that's not going to be for everybody, and that's fine. Uh, think of how many cool cultures have, have developed in the world. They don't all have to be for everybody. And, but you can you know, start something that you believe in is better than you know, trying to stop somebody else's thing. Uh, so you know, start, your own, uh, you know, start your own world, your own values, your own you know, environment. Control what you can. Uh, what is your, what is you, what do you think is beautiful? Start that, do, do something. Yeah. Yeah. We've become far too reactive and we need to start our own things. And I was also thinking though about when you talked about tribes and how we are only accountable to our own tribe, I was thinking I, we do have our own things and I've got my own, I've got two podcasts and a lot of people listen and we've got GB news and so on. And I've got my own tribe and I don't actually care what leftists think at all. And I think their philosophy is entirely wrong on all levels and don't think it's valid. I don't think it's, got, it's valid even one bit. And yet they can still attack me. The only problem with that, they can attack and try and destroy my thing all the time, which, which they do. They try and, this is cancel culture. So that's, that's quite interesting. It's like, you've got your own tribe. You don't care about the other tribe, but they will assault your tribe. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's how reality works, unfortunately. I mean, like, yeah, I mean, I've obviously been the target of that as well over the years. Um, and... Uh, you know that that is what it is, um, and and yeah, the temptation is that uh, with that, as I said, is to become you know is resentment, like oh they're always out to get me, and uh, you know and uh, and it's true they are out to get. So sometimes it's not paranoia. Sometimes they really are out to get you. <laughs> you know, yeah, but yeah. Uh, uh, at the same time, you you the best thing that you can do is to not lose your focus and to keep moving forward and creating something rather than to be constantly scared and reacting. And that's, that's a speech I have to give myself, you know, uh, you know because yeah. we, we're all aware of the consequences of things like that. But I think the best thing that you can do is to keep creating and to keep moving forward and to keep, you know, you, you, sh you shouldn't be afraid to change what you believe in. Uh, I've, I've certainly changed certain things that I believed in over the past 10 years. Uh, but you have to keep moving forward in the way that you think is right rather than just trying to stop everybody else or trying to be defensive all the time because defensive games are not like the best games to play generally. Yeah, and you've mentioned your solo idealism a couple of times. What is that? You've talked about being a pagan. Do you still call yourself a pagan? And is that is that tied in with this solo idealism? Because I'm not up to that part of your work yet, so I'm not sure what that is. Okay, uh, well, I started over the few years very much as a consequence of the things we've been talking about. Um, and especially the, the, the darkness that was happening in 2020 and so forth, and the, the tendency of men to just be angry and, and to fester in anger. Um, I, I started a slogan called Stay Solar, and it was basically to think, think about what the idea of the sun is, like what the sun is and what it does, and that's really what men want to be in the world around them. Uh, that's what a good man is. 
uh, to a certain extent. It's like, oh, the sun actually has gravity, pulls things into its orbit, and actually nourishes and helps them all. You know, like it brings light and nourishment to all of them. And and he has it has so much energy that he can afford to give that to the people around him. And so you, this kind of expansive mentality, I think that that's what you that's what you see in great men. Uh, whether they're leaders of companies or countries or, or conquerors or whatever, you have they have so much energy that they can give it to other people. And so I thought that was a really good, and I wrote an essay called Stay Solar, and uh, I thought that was a really good starting point for a positive culture. And so I've developed that into, into a philosophy called solar idealism. And that basically, it kind of reworks these Jungian archetypes by looking at religions and how they've evolved over the centuries and what are the what again what are the same repeated themes you know so i talk about you know there's always a father in the sky and what are the qualities of the father and what does he always do you know and it's very similar to like a, a christian or judaic god uh because that that was part of the they're all father gods they're all father sky gods and uh they have very similar powers and ideas and 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 thing functions in the universe and then like there's always a warrior figure and what are they associated with? Whether it's Thor or Marduk or whatever, they're always associated with the same kind of things. They're always storm gods who have lightning and kill dragons. You know, I mean, that's it's a pretty that's that's a human constant. It's been around for a really long time. We we found some of it in Native American stuff really re recently, which was really cool. Uh, so it's you know, let's as men focus on this idea of of being more like the sun, and then you know. Look at these archetypes of, of idealized masculinity. But what is the perfect version? I think that gods really to men are the perfect versions of what they could be. They're like, he, here's what I would be if I was turned up to an 11. You know, like, and, and we're never going to get turned up. We're never going to be perfect. But I, th I think that the gods of men generally have been like the, these reflections of themselves. So what are the perfect versions of us and how can we get closer to that? is what my philosophy really is. That's what solar idealism is. And, and I've, I've been working on it and developing, developing it. And I have a, a buddy of mine who's really good at philosophy who's kind of like you know, fleshing it out in, in that sense. And, and uh, we have some experts on different things in our group that uh, are building it out in different ways. Uh, but that's, yeah, that's, that's my focus these, these days is, is building that. Because, yeah, again, I'm, I'm trying to start something. You know, I, I want to start something rather than just saying you should start something. I have to start something too. I have to do what I'm telling people to do. So uh, I'm trying to start something that represents what my beliefs actually are. Very cool. Yeah, it's very cool just to have your own philosophy that you've fully developed. Because when you think about it, something like objectivism is pretty big. It was just started by some chick. It was Ayn Rand just yeah. wrote this. And now like all kinds of people around the world follow it. And it's just, you know, I suppose, I suppose you could cite Scientology. There's any number of things you could cite. So... You're just, yeah. you're just coming up with your own philosophy. Yeah, we, I, I never haven't really thought about doing that. I mean, so that's really interesting. And so I need to read that essay. So it's what? It's it Stay Solar. Is this on your website or something? Yeah, Stay Solar is the essay, and you can find that pretty easily. And then, uh, you know, my book, Fire in the Dark, is really the big the big form of that. Uh, okay. there, then there's things, well, what is solar idealism? In it? And I I've actually have some YouTube videos. I have a, I have a YouTube channel uh, for the Order of Fire. Uh, that's pretty new that I've just been working on with my guys and we do podcasts and stuff like that. And, uh, I did a, like, what is solar idealism explainer video? That's like maybe 15 minutes long. Okay. Uh, so that's kind of me talking about it in a slightly longer form. And I uh, worked really hard on that and just got that out a few, uh, weeks ago. Very so. interesting. Might not be for some of our Christian listeners, but solar idealism, very interesting. And I've seen you on Instagram out in the desert with a bunch of blokes. What, what's all that about? Is that what you do? You go out and do sort of rituals. 
Yeah, well, it's like, well, what our foundational ritual, the foundational idea of uh, the order of fire is that, yeah, at some point in every society, at some point there's men who break away and start their own thing. Uh, you know, whether it's ancient Rome or whatever, uh, it, it's, there's some, it's a, a small group of guys go over here and start their own thing. And so we use the fire as a metaphor. Fire is kind of, does the same thing as the sun. I mean, if you see what a fire does, it provides light and warmth and it becomes a point of orientation in the world. Okay. Well, that's our campsite. That's home. It creates a sense of home, like right where you, as soon as you make it. And then people revolve around it, you know, kind of gravitate towards it. Uh, if you've ever had a campfire, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And so, you know, the first time we went out as a group, what we did that symbolically is uh, we went, we actually hiked out uh, four miles, well, four hours into the desert and uh, built a fire. And, uh, you know, I conducted a ritual because I've done that in the past and I have a pretty good idea of what I'm doing. And uh, we conducted a ritual and, and in the sense of like, here, we're laying down this fire. These are our values. This is what we actually mean. We're creating order in our own world is what the function of that ritual really is. Um, you know, it's, it's very symbolic and for some of the guys it's connected to something bigger. And for some of the guys, it's just, you know, this, it's symbols. And so we kind of leave that open-ended. Uh, but, uh, men, you know, never underestimate the fact that men want to go out into the woods and scream. Uh, <laughs> like, if there's one thing I've learned in life, it is that in conducting rituals is that men want to go out in the woods and shout things. Uh, that there's just something about that, whether it's the woods or the desert or whatever. I think that there's a real desire of men to do that and to do it, to do it in a way that it's not all touchy feely. Cause there, there's that too. You can find that out there, but, uh, we try to do it in a really strength based way. And, uh, you know, that, that is inconsistent with, is consistent with the rest of our philosophy. And so that's been really cool to do that. We did it, uh, in the desert in Arizona here. Uh, I've had guys, I gave them the script that I use and they've done it in Australia and, uh, Canada. Uh, we did it again in Nevada recently. And, uh, next week I am flying to Ireland and doing it there, uh, which is going to be really cool because I've never done it in another country, uh, so far. So, uh, I'll be, uh, meet, meet my Irish guys. And uh, we're going to do it there. So um, I'm excited about that. Again, start start a new fire, start the new world, uh, build something uh, bigger that hopefully will like extend beyond myself. Awesome. Yeah, you might have to plan for rain for the Irish version. It might be slightly less solar. But um, yeah, I, I believe I believe he said we might see the sun. <laughs> Paul is our Irish guy and he, 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 he's, he's, he's a good sense of humor so that's funny yeah because you're in Arizona so there's no shortage of solar energy but it might not be the same over here or in Ireland sure. but um, that is cool yeah you're right screaming it is frowned upon if you scream and, and punch stuff in the office I've noticed it's better to go out to the woods <laughs> and, uh, it's, it looks like a kind of fight club in the desert not to uh, not to mock it because I'm just uh, I'm just having a laugh but it, it, it looks like a cool thing But you, and actually you were praised by the author of Fight Club weren't you uh, yeah, yeah, it was really cool. It was honestly, I, I saw Fight Club in the theater like seven times when it was when it came out. Uh, and it kind of, it did definitely influence my life. Uh, and so uh, I was working at a PR firm in San Francisco at the time, and so I kind of was the main character. And uh, you know, I was like, it, it it was part of the thing that sparked. Oh, what am I missing? And I don't necessarily reach the same conclusions that he did or whatever, but um, went on my own path for sure. But yeah, it was it was wild. Years later, uh, I had had this tattoo shop, and Chuck uh, came over, you know, wanted to meet me, and I think he interviewed me like, kind of as a character study for maybe some things that he was working on, because uh, because yeah, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit of an interesting character, and so I you know I met him once, and then uh, we uh, 
we had lunch again after that. And then uh, every once in a while, I'll send him an email and he'll get back to me. You know, like I don't try to bug him. Uh, you know, he has a lot of stuff that he's doing and, and uh, he gets hassled a lot for ever having been in the same room with me because I'm a bad man. Uh, but uh, he's, he's, he's definitely a, a brilliant, brilliant guy. And uh, it was really cool to meet him and have that come full circle. And uh, he, he made some cool suggestions that I've incorporated into my own things over time. And uh, I actually messaged him during 2020. It was funny because um, we, when uh, every, all the lockdowns were happening and whatever, there were people going to jiu-jitsu in secret. Uh, like, and I was one of them. Like, we, were, we have to sneak in the back door and change, like, there. And no one could know that we were going to the jiu-jitsu place. And, uh, and it was like, you know, you don't tell anyone this is open. This, like... The first rule of Fight Club is you don't talk about Fight Club. And I was like, dude, it's really happening. <laughs> like, I just sent him an yeah. email like, this is Fight Club is actually happening right now. And uh, he got back to me and he liked that. Uh, so, but uh, it, it, was, it was real. Uh, it was, it's a cool thing to see. That is hilarious. And that is very real. I mean, I watched Fight Club at school. It was a you know, really important movie when it came out. Mind-blowing. And... But it was very much a movie. You didn't really think it was going to happen. I watched it again recently. It was a touch more blackpilled than I even remembered. But it was a very important movie. But yeah, like you say, now it's actually happening. The world's sufficiently messed up that we're going out and doing our own little fight clubs, especially during lockdown. Yeah, yeah. the first rule of lockdown jiu-jitsu club. That, that is funny. <laughs> That's where we're at. Wow. Yeah. And do you, are you doing any of this stuff in the UK then? Or is, is, I mean, Ireland, is Ireland, in, as in, in England or is Britain, is Ireland the closest you're getting? Do you have like groups around the world? Other than the oh, we do mentioned. have groups around the world. It's just, you know, it's, uh, it's a strange and new thing, you know, that I came up with. So like, it's, it's hard to get everybody on the exact same page. So we make, we take applications and I'm like, I can kind of tell if they're, if we're on the same page or not. So it takes a while. Uh, but no, our, our, the guys who are meeting in Ireland, one of them's from Sweden. And, um, uh, I think one of them's from the UK and then one of them is actually Polish, but he lives in Ireland right now. So, and then, and the Irish guy, I think the guys we have coming out, we might have a few more, but yeah, like I said, we have, a really active group in Nicanda, a really active group in Australia, and uh, a guy in Guatemala. You know, it just depends who uh, who applies and, uh, and and so forth, and who works out over time. But yeah, our European group has been really cool. Our guy uh, in Sweden actually makes fantastic music because we're trying to create culture and art. And I did a project, uh, and you can find it on my YouTube actually, uh, it called or my Instagram. Uh, I mean, not my Instagram, but my uh, X. It's at the top there. It's called Invocation of the Storm. And it's kind of my reinterpretation of myth to be our, our uh, part of our mythology that we're creating. And I, it was a, it was, I think a ballsy move for me. Uh, I think I did good Maximus speeches. Like in my, my book, the way I narrate, it has a certain tone to it. And I was like, can I do that for real? Can I do a scene? And uh, so I actually had this guy score it as if it was a movie. And then went and shot it in a soundstage and did it as a scene. And uh, I think it came out pretty well. I edited the whole thing myself. Uh, you know, it was a really cool creative project to work on. Um, you know, and I'd like to do more things like that in the future. Like, can we bring these things to life, these, these ideas? And so, yeah, but he, yeah, the guy from Sweden is the guy who did the music for that. So we have a lot of collaboration happening and a, a lot more on the way. Very cool that you're walking the walk and actually creating stuff, and uh, you know, and there's definitely a desire for it for masculine groups and for just creativity on our side that isn't lame. So, and yeah, I can confirm the books are really well read. Very, very interesting the way you read them. It makes it a whole experience on the Audible. In one of them, you've even got sound effects in, in becoming a barbarian as well. And 
stuff like I that. think so. I think there are a couple yeah, yeah. of sound effects. I, I went a little over top of, of the top of that <laughs> one. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, yeah, no, I mean, yeah. But, yeah, I think my books are written as if I'm giving a speech so that the audibles are actually a really good way to listen to them. Yeah, so check out the Audible books for Way of Men and all his other, Jack's other books. Highly recommended. Even if you don't agree with all the ideas, just definitely a great experience. And some great passages of writing. I haven't even mentioned, like, the Bonobo Masturbation Society is one of the great <laughs> chapters in literature in The Way of Men. I haven't, I haven't even mentioned it, but I just was listening to this thinking, this is, this is brilliant. Even just, you know, as literature. So check that out. And um, where, where else can people find you, Jack? I know you've got to go. Where else is good to find you? Well, I just, I didn't start X until Elon Musk bought it because I just figured I'd get canceled, so I didn't even bother. Uh, so uh, I'm on X at uh, PH2T3R. My name was taken. So the PH2T3R is uh, Pater, like father. Uh, so that's what I, I use on that uh, platform. Uh, Instagram, I'm at Start the World. And uh, there's also an Instagram for the Order of Fire. And uh, you can find me on YouTube um, you know, it, at Jack Donovan. But there's also uh, an Order of Fire um, YouTube channel, which is where I'm really doing podcasting and stuff now. I've done things in the past under Jack Donovan, but... I'm really kind of invested in this uh, um, order of fire right now. So we're doing a lot of, you know, we'll have podcasts on what is goodness and, you know, like a, a group discussions on what is goodness and, and, and uh, what is magic and, and things like that. So it, it's very philosophical and I'm, I'm, I'm proud of the discussions that we're having. I think they're very interesting. All right. Well, brilliant episode. Thanks so much for doing it. And um, yeah, and good luck with all that. And thanks for doing the show. All right. No problem. All right, that was Jack Donovan. Fascinating episode, I thought. I'm a Christian, obviously, but I don't mind a bit of pagan chat. Hopefully you enjoyed it too. And if you did, check out his books on Audible. I definitely recommend them. And if you want to support the podcast, go to buymeacoffee.com slash nickdixon. Buy me a digital coffee, leave a comment. I reply to them all. Or you can go to nickdixon.substack.com and subscribe to my Substack for £5 a month. So help us keep the lights on and support the current thing. Buymeacoffee.com slash nickdixon, nickdixon.substack.com. And we'll see you again next week. 